Hey guys, welcome to this special Labor Day edition of the Posting and Toasting Show. I'm Drew, Schwinn's here. What up, Schwinn? What's going on? Uh, not much. And today, guys, we have a very special guest. Probably the biggest name that we're ever going to get on this podcast. So this is really exciting. He is what we proudly call the block father around here in these streets of Posting and Toasting. We have SB Nation's Seth Rodens. Rosenthal. Oh, God, I already butchered that. Seth. Were you going to say Rosenstein? I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> I honestly don't know what was going to come out. But, uh, Seth, welcome to the, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's, t- you know, there are so many, I have such like a generic Jewish name and there, we got so many prefixes and suffixes going on. It can be tough to keep them straight. You know what? That makes me look like a really bad, like anti-Semite right now. And that makes me no. sad. But, no, uh, no. No, we're just no, we'll just we'll just roll with it. That's okay. I will not mess up the name. It's it's early in the morning. I didn't have my uh I just drinking my coffee right now. But uh no, it's great. Seth, do you remember the only time that uh that we met? Yeah, we met at uh uh the bar this past season, didn't we? Was that this season? It was, but the best part about that interaction was I was like, Hey Seth, I'm Drew. Um if you are I was like and I'm looking for a job at SB Nation if you could hook me up with one and you were like, you know I can't do that. That was like our <laughs> only interaction. And I'm proud of that one. Yeah, I mean the next one we can maybe get in a bit more depth, but I thought we got off on the on the right foot. I I think so. <laughs> I definitely think so. Even though your face was like, Holy shit, what is up with this guy? This is what he does <laughs> to people when he just introduces himself and the answer is usually yes. That's usually what I do. With uh with everyone. So uh, we're going to get into a wide range of uh, topics today on the uh, the show. We're going to talk about um, kind of what like spurred Seth to even like getting, like creating, posting, toasting, that kind of that time in uh, in writing. Um, we're going to hit on a bunch of Nick's points as well, kind of in that process. You know, Seth does a lot of videos and wrote a recent article on like Porzingis not too long ago. So we're going to get into that. And then we have a bunch of questions from you guys. They were supposed to be, you know, Nick's pizza and animal related we got some pizza we got maybe one or two animal a lot of nicks and a lot of random stuff that honestly we're probably not going to get like come on guys i'm going to keep yelling at you guys to step up with your questions but um let's get into it seth um you founded the blog like a, you know probably early 2010s time era like what um what got you to even thinking like i'm going to write about the nicks on a on a website like this it was a little earlier than that, even. I was a senior in high school, um, so 2006. Oh, okay. It's even a lot earlier. Well, that's, so 2006, I started my own, like, Blogspot blog, you know, just on the Google blog. <laughs> yeah, good old Blogspot. Yeah, on Blogspot. And that was, you know, the impetus for that was not particularly complicated. I was a, you know, grouchy, sad teenager. I loved the Knicks. The Knicks were terrible. I really didn't have anyone to talk to about the Knicks. I grew up in Jersey, and by the t- if you grow up in Jersey in the early 2000s, a lot of your friends switched from being Knicks fans to Nets fans. Uh, and so I didn't, I didn't have a ton of people to talk to about the Knicks, but I had just started to discover the online NBA community that, you know, in its sort of nation stage, Free Darko existed. Uh, there was a site called courtsidetimes.net that had a lot of the, the the writers and frankly like league executives that are out there right now. Um, I think Knickerblogger existed by that point, but yeah, I figured, mm-hmm. I figured I could just start my own Knicks blog and 
at that point, SB Nation barely existed. It was just a handful of uh, MLB blogs and maybe a couple NBA blogs. Um, but by the following year, I think March of 07, um, I had sort of commented enough on other SB Nation NBA blogs. Like I used to comment on Pounding the Rock, the Spurs one, a lot just because they had a good community. And someone found my Knicks blog and was like, hey, do you want to found a Knicks blog for SB Nation? And that's that's when I started posting and toasting, March of 07. Well, so that's basically like freshman year of college and like this weird era where like the online NBA community wasn't like really what it is today at all. It was like this weird like Wild West. Well, well Twitter didn't even exist then. So. No, Twitter was around. Or was that in 08? I, if Twitter existed None of, or at least I wasn't using it for the first couple of years that I was, you know, writing about the Knicks in one place or another. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's interesting. I'm gonna go on a quick tangent. Seth, what part of Jersey did you uh, did you grow up in? I grew up in Morris County. Oh, okay. A town called Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. Okay, yeah, that's definitely uh, out there because I too grew up in uh, Jersey around this time, but I grew up in uh, Clifton, so. Not not terribly far from Clifton. No, yeah, no, not far at all. That's why I find it interesting and uh. It was kind of – I didn't really have too many, like, Nets fans in that area, which was – I didn't – but I wasn't really, like – but I also was isolated from uh, the Knicks as well because everyone was, like, random, like, sports teams fans. It would be, like – would it be, like, the Lakers or the Sixers or the yeah. – like, it would just be, like, a random, like, hodgepodge of teams. And I, too, the only time I would uh, get any sort of, like, Knicks interaction was, like, listening to ESPN Radio in my mm-hmm. uh, in my 1996 Ford Thunderbird just driving around uh, – Driving around Jersey, Damn so um, boss. oh yeah, definitely. I even got a paint job on it. I got it all blacked out. It was it was pretty sweet, and then it just stopped working, <laughs> which was always probably because you were listening to Knicks games so much. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, that was I. I can't even. It's should we expand a little bit? I don't know because we probably have some like younger listeners to the uh, to the show. Let's talk about like just how bad like the Knicks were during like that. Oh, like that mid two thousands to like twenty ten era, like it was it was a disaster. Like that's especially when I really started like following and rooting for the team, and it was I don't even know I got like Stockholm syndrome into it. But I think we should expand on just how bad like the Isaiah era was. Do we I mean, want to? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's people, I mean, look, there's people. I'm, I don't want to throw any people under the bus that rhymes, you know, with people that rhymes with like screwed them who think like you know. Like, the Mellow era was, like, the greatest thing ever, and there's just a lack of almost, like, historical context of just, like, what, like, great Knicks teams actually were and what actual bad Knicks teams actually were. Because there's even people who currently think, like, the Phil Jackson era was, like, the worst era of Knicks basketball, and it's like, does anyone, did everyone just forget the 2000s? So, like, it's, like, one of those sort of situations. I think we... There are even presidential candidates that think this is the worst period of time in the Knicks history, so... There's also that. You're not a. You're not part of the. Are you guys part of the Yang Gang? I mean, I actually think Yang's pretty cool, but um, not. I mean, his Knicks takes are just fucking like. It's like, all right, man, get a grip here. Like, you can be you can be upset about them not signing stars and all that shit, and like, that's fine. But it, I don't know how you can actually think that this is the worst situation the Knicks. Like this, this is the darkest. This is the darkest time for Knicks fans. Like. Like you said, man, like the Isaiah's, I mean, the Isaiah's era and all that shit, it was so depressing, not because 
only did we suck, but it was like we sucked and we had nothing to look forward to because half the time we had already we had traded our picks for like one of the players that was influential in us sucking. Um and there was like no young talent. It was just overpaid aging vets. Like the whole thing just sucked. And then there was also obviously a infamous uh, you know, sexual harassment lawsuit. So just the whole thing was just it was atrocious. It was really I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it other than that. It sucked. Seth, you gonna add anything or you just wanna I I did not like it. Uh the <laughs> it was I mean it's as you described it, it was it was like a pyramid scheme where the future kept getting traded for the present. And so every summer it felt like there was a new sort of savior complex going on where now Jerome James is going to be the guy. Now Eddie Curry's going to be the guy. Now Jamal Crawford's going to be the guy. Um, and those guys were never the guy. And so it was like these really bloated, overpaid rosters of like fun, likable people for the most part that did not form a coherent basketball team and were, you know, run by a cabal of sexual harassers and, you know, billionaire sociopaths. And so that that wasn't great. Okay, no. So I just wanted to – I feel like we need to, like, get this on the record for everyone to just kind of know, like, that was really, like, the worst era of the Knicks so far. But uh, I'm going to get us back – oh, wait. Who is uh, – Schwinn, were you going to say something? Yeah, I mean, I just – I think it's – like, people don't even – I think if some of those trades – like – I actually wish Twitter existed back then because I think if it did, Isaiah just like wouldn't have done half of the horrible trades he made just because it would have been like, oh, I'm going to get slaughtered for this. Um, same with Layden too, who was low key just as bad as Isaiah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We don't need to spend too much more time on, uh, the, <laughs> the most depressing era of Nick's history, which is saying something. Um, yeah, like it, 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 it's, I don't know. Anybody that thinks the Phil Jackson era was the worst is a baby. Um, so. Yeah, definitely have to go with that. So I actually want to, I'm going to get us back on the, uh, the blog thing. Cause Seth, when you were approached by SB Nation, you're writing now or whatever, like, what was that? What was that time like? Cause you're, I'm, you're in college now at this point. I'm assuming like that sort of like that age range. Um, like, were you just like, constantly like pumping out articles was it like a large following like how did like even the following kind of grow from there at that point it was extremely low-key i was still yeah i was i was in my final you know semester of high school or whatever and it was hey you're writing a blog where you recap games and you know write about news stories and just whenever you have a spare opinion you put it on the internet keep doing that uh, you know, the first contract I signed was like a word document that I showed to a lawyer relative who said it was not legally binding in any way. Like it was, it was a complete like amateur, you know, it wasn't, no one was making any real money. Everyone was just kind of hanging out, having a good time. The following built somewhat gradually. I mean, the, you know, the, the blogging CMS, the software we were working with was, for the time amazing and it's it's amazing now and it, it it has you know kept pace with the times but so it was it was a cool place to write it was literally like just like a cool uh, uh uh system to work with and it was very easy to comment it was very easy for commenters to write their own things and and there was this 
budding network. So, you know, an odd Spurs fan or Washington Wizards fan here and there would come over and say hi, and they would tell their next fan friend about it, or someone would find it on Google, and or you would get a link from, like, Deadspin or the Basketball Jones, and that would bring some people in. And so it felt like the community built very organically, very gradually. Um, and, you know, p- posts then would just get a couple comments, and I would... You know, we all had the like site meter software installed so you could see where people were coming from. And every single person who visited or commented was like really exciting. And it was it was fun. It was it was cool. And it didn't feel like getting thrown into the fire. It just felt like, you know, I had a slightly nicer toy to mess around with to, you know, tell people how I felt about Marty Collins or whatever. Ooh, good old old Marty Marty Collins. Collins. Blast from the past. (laughs) Oh, man. So what did you start, like, adding writers to, like, you know, like, just people, like, to come on to, like, the website? Like, when did that start coming about? Or, like, why did it even start? Like, yeah. Happen? Um, not for a little while. Uh, we, I mean, you know, I like you said, I, I went to college. And in college, you realize, hey, I don't necessarily want to watch the Knicks get the shit kicked out of them on a Friday night when there are parties <laughs> happening. And mostly I just did do that. But increasingly, as I wanted to sleep in and go to class and stay out late and do other things besides watch Knicks games, I would, you know, ask for a commenter, someone who I had never met, whose name I didn't even know, to, like, do a recap just because I liked their comments. And then by the time I was – so I I should use world time, not my own personal time. So 2010, maybe, 2009 – uh, it was Charlie Osborne, who was a longtime commenter, and John Casimiro, who was a longtime commenter, and also had, I think both of them had blogs going of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I asked them to, like, actually take on some recaps and, you know, be part of the, the staff, as it were. Um, and so they were really regular contributors. And then from there, I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm comfortable not running this by myself. Because for a while, it was kind of my baby, and it was it was only my voice. And... I was sort of precious about it, but increasingly, you know, I was willing to bring in more people, get some different voices, and eventually, you know, hand over the entire thing after some time. You know, that's, uh, that, that's, that's kind of interesting, the idea of, like, the reason why, like, most of the writers, like, came on board is the idea of, like, you just wanted to just have the college experience. And I find that, like, a, a very interesting way just to kind of, like, oh, we're going to expand a bit. And it's just mainly, like, no, I just want to be a college student. So that's uh that's pretty interesting. So at this point you got people writing, you're doing all this stuff. Like did you ever have any sort of like aspirations to then like turn what you're writing like on the blog into like now like a career in like NBA writing? Uh no, I mean obviously I've kind of done that, but no, I was I mean I went to college with the intention of going to grad school to get a PhD in neuroscience. Like I had no, no interest in being a sports writer (laughs) um, or doing anything related. You know, it was, it was just a hobby and like, I would have loved to get paid a little bit, but I I had no expectation that would ever turn into into a career. But I, I got some opportunities that I didn't ask for. I got really, really fortunate. I started, uh, you know, SB Nation had some little part-time things pop up here and there. SB Nation New York, we had regional sites back then, had me 
you know, like copy editing and writing just like Rangers recap posts and garbage like that while I was still a junior, senior in college. Um, I had some freelance social work. I did not social work, but social media work I did for, <laughs> for SB Nation. And then the big one was that, uh, New York Magazine still had on their website a, a sports vertical that was run by Will Leach. Oh, right. I, I subbed in for him for this column he did, a next column he did when he was, I think on his honeymoon. And then eventually it just became my column because he didn't feel like doing it anymore. And then I got a part-time gig there. And by the time I graduated college, I was making a little bit, a tiny bit of money to write. And I had the luxury of being able to live at home for a year. So I, I gave that a try and kind of just scammed my way upward from there into having a full-time job. And so, so you more or less like almost like accidentally got into this. Like the idea, like during this time, this was probably the best era for people who were writing at this time, like in college and whatever, to actually grow their brand in a way. But you almost you more or less like unintentionally got there, which is really interesting. So I don't. I wonder if everyone. I wonder if everyone's story is like yours, or you're more of like an isolated piece in in this. I. I think I am very lucky. I think there has never been a good time to be writing about sports on the internet. And I, I got really lucky. And, and I, you know, there were other paths I could have taken, which I still think about sometimes. Like I graduated the year of the lockout. So I graduated in 2011. Mm-hmm. And there was no basketball played again until, you know, almost 2012. And that wasn't great for someone who was like, all right, you know what? I won't try to go to grad school. Won't try to go to grad school. I will try to make money just doing what I've been doing for the last six years for fun. Uh, and so the, the Knicks offered me a job and I came in and it was, they were in the middle of like shit canning Donnie Walsh. Like <laughs> that day, I can, you can pinpoint the exact day I interviewed with the Knicks because it was the day they fired Donnie Walsh because I'm pretty sure that delayed. I sat in the, the lobby or like the waiting room at this like messy ass MSG office for like two Sounds hours. real professional. For like <laughs> two hours because the PR staff was, you know, all busy like dealing with the fallout of Donnie Walsh leaving or getting fired or whatever happened. And, uh, they were like, well, there's, you know, there's probably not going to be basketball for a while. So you're just going to be, you know, making stuff up and we're not really going to pay you that much and good luck. And I said, no. And that was a big, a big moment in my career, I guess, that sort of sent me down a different path. But yeah, I mean, I, I think opportunities have generally been few and far between for actually talented basketball writers and someone like me merely happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I, you know, I would not mistake that for anything else. So uh, then, and that's the case, like, what made you decide to, uh, like, step down from hosting and toasting and really focus on, I would say, like, the NBA at large right now? Yeah, I mean, it, posting and toasting has never been my job at any point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I was never making even close to a living off of it. I was just because I wanted to and was obsessed and, you know, felt a sort of responsibility and ownership. I was working something like full-time hours for a couple of those years. But as, you know, as my job writing about sports in one way or another became 
part-time and then full-time and then, you know, became the way I actually feed myself and pay rent, uh, it was a little less appealing to work nine to five or uh, for some years, 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. And then also recap some like dog shit Andre Bargnani mix game. <laughs> I, I didn't want to do that anymore. I was tired of working for free in addition to working on similar stuff in my real job. So, you know, I, it, it, it happened gradually. I, I gave all of the PNT stipend over to Joe Flynn and then gave him basically editorial control over the site and sort of gradually faded away and was really only editing and not writing. And then, uh, 2017 was the exact 10 year anniversary of the founding of PNT. And it felt like a nice natural, you know, round numbered time to, to fuck off and let Joe take over and, you know, let it officially transition from Seth's next blog to just a really good SB Nation next blog. Man, just, uh, Schwinn and I like just missed out on, uh, on your era, which is, uh, which is kind of sad to, uh, to say. But, um, now that we're, you're kind of reaching at this point and you're talking about, um, you know, working full time, pay payment and like just kind of like the life of an NBA writer. Can you just provide just some sort of context? Cause there's been a lot going on with SB Nation. If you're like following like any sort of like sports writing and like the blog sphere and everything like that, like a lot of SB Nation writers are unionizing and they're trying to get better wages and all this stuff and like fighting for workers' rights. And you're a big advocate for it. And I would just love to have at least some point like right here in the, uh, in the show, just for you to like kind of talk about like the importance of what it means to, for like unionized work, especially in sports writing. Yeah, sure. I mean, there quickly are sort of two things that have happened in parallel. They're not as related as I would love for them to be. One is that Vox Media's full-time staff, so that's not just SB, full-time, you know, labor staff. Uh, so that's not just SB Nation, but Vox.com, Eater, Vox Studios, Curbed, all these websites. So I think about 350 employees of Vox Media, uh, two years ago formed a, or like a year or two ago formed a union. And just this past June, after over a year of bargaining with the company over our contracts, finalized the CBA, which is now in effect. And so I am, you know, I'm part of the union, uh, as a full-time employee of Vox Media and a couple, a handful of SB Nation team bloggers because they, the company has decided that they want those sites to be run by full-time people are part of our union. Um, so there's a little overlap, but the other thing, you know, that has probably touched you guys more is that in the last couple of years, I think mostly, frankly, thanks to public pressure, but also because of sort of slow moving internal gears, Vox Media has done done some work to at least clean up and organize the way it compensates and keeps track of its massive uh, stable of SB Nation team bloggers. You know, there are mm. something like 300 mm-hmm. sites staffed by, you know, probably thousands, over a thousand, if not thousands of bloggers of all walks of life. Again, like a handful of them are full time and so part of the union, but most of them are paid by stipend as I was, and I'm, I hope you guys are at least a little bit. Um, and so there, you know, that is a, a massive force of contractors who have not enjoyed the benefit of organizing and being part of a union, um, 
because legally we could not include within the Vox Media Union contractors. Um, but so those have been sort of parallel labor issues that have gone on. And I am happy and proud to be part of the union. And I simultaneously know what it's like to be a team blogger and have talked to a bunch of team bloggers during this process about what can be done there and how things have changed in the last year or two and what the future looks like. I'm curious what you guys think there too, but um, that's that's where things stand. I guess I haven't really expressed much in the way of opinion or like insight, but that's that's a rough recap of the last couple of years. No, I think that's um, important to even recap. Uh, Shwin, do you have any uh, – I just want to let you because you haven't really – I feel like we've isolated you, which is a very rare moment in the Posting Post show history, <laughs> the idea of keeping you relatively silent. Um, no, it's good. Seth's talking. So Yeah, so your thoughts on the whole, this, um, even I think stepping down to the um, the team level for almost like kind of like what we do for writing. Because, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I think at a certain level, you're not really doing it for money. So, um, like, I don't see a, a purpose in me being part of the, of the union, right? Because I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I haven't written anything for like fucking three months or some shit. Um, you know, like I'm not a consistent contributor and, uh, I'm not doing it for, you know, I, I just kind of like obsess about the Knicks. So writing every now and then for posting and toasting, um, or, you know, I, I've, I've written other places before this, but, um, it just kind of like, a good outlet. Um, but you know, I, I think what they have done, uh, in terms of the kind of workforce that has been unionized makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a really big step. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's just a good thing. Uh, and I, I don't know if that exists. I don't know. I, I guess SP nation kind of like occupies a very unique niche. Um, like I don't, are, are there any other, blog networks even comparable i don't really think so uh and most other writing outlets for sports are like what at this point it's just you know it's like major media outlets so like espn uh fox cbs uh the action network can't forget about the action network can't forget about the action network <laughs> um yeah so i i just i don't know i, I guess it, it it makes sense that it took a while uh I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess maybe that's a question for Seth too, but like, I can't imagine when SB Nation started. I'm sure that, yeah, like the goal was like, we want to make this huge, but I don't even think, I don't even know if they anticipated, uh, you know, the reach that they would eventually have. And I guess like, you know, SB Nation's always, it's like only always growing, um, you know, cause sports teams aren't going anywhere and, if anything, more teams just get added or there's like rising interest in more sports. Um, so I don't know. You've seen it. Like I, I've seen it at least in the last few years where like there's more soccer blogs than there used to be. Like every, right. you know, there's a ton. So, um, yeah, I, I just always wonder, like I, I feel like they created something with an idea of like, okay, we want to make this big because, you know, anytime you start something, your goal is always to like make it a big thing success right um and i they probably didn't realize how big it would become and i i'm i'm sure even like seth i'm sure when you started posting and toasting you didn't anticipate it uh growing to the scale it has now where it's like 
you know, like you said, the first, like when you were first writing posts would get a couple of comments and whatever. And now it's like, you know, if you get 60 comments on a, on a post, you're like, Oh, that was a pretty slow day. Right. I mean, I, I, that's true in two ways. I think no one anticipated that well, someone probably did, but no one anticipated that SB nation would sprout this giant professional media company that is getting into television and probably movies and has these big important websites and, you know, a gigantic professional staff around the world. That's one thing. And then separately, I'm not sure if people really believe that it would turn into like you're describing this massive network of semi-professional team blogs. That's, you know, that is still really the heart of SB Nation. Um, but the one thing that hasn't changed And I think something that you touched on a little bit that overlaps with the idea of this being a labor issue is that as it was when I joined in 2007 or 2006, the much larger staff or the much larger group of of, of SB Nation team bloggers is super varied in who they are and what they want out of it. I, you know, it seems like in some markets for some blogs, there are SB Nation team bloggers who are the best beat reporter of that team in town because the team happens to give them a credential and they get access. And they're, you know, they're really journalists. There are other people who are young and want to get there and really hope that they can make this their job. And then there are people who, you know, really just want, want are, are essentially commenters who would love the idea of a bigger platform just want to write whenever they feel like writing are not trying to make money or, you know, get into a locker room or anything like that. And there are 60 year old, you know, millionaire lawyers who just, you know, feel like writing about Marty Collins now and then it's like such a widely varied group of people (laughs) with all different kinds of ambitions and expectations of of what they're going to get out of this experience. And, I think that it makes it really interesting and compelling, but it also, when I have talked to people and said, you know, SB Nation team, team blogs probably make a lot of money for the company and that's not necessarily money that's coming back to people. What can we do about this? There's a huge swath of people that are like, I don't care. I don't, you know, this isn't work. I'm just doing it for fun. I, there are no expectations of me. I have no ambitions. And there are other people who are like, I am working my ass off. Even if no one's asking me to, I am going to 41 NBA games a year and doing work that's as good as the newspapers are doing. And it sucks that I am getting paid like anything. And I don't know how to square those two things, but it's, it is a big and super, you know, varied group of people. Yeah. Yeah. I can I mean, imagine that that's pretty difficult. Um, it's just like a lot of, it's so broad, the spectrum of, ambition you're dealing with on a personal level so it's kind of hard to come up with like an equitable solution that makes everybody happy yeah it also just makes the whole like this whole current like labor issue just kind of in our current economy now like really complicated because before a lot of you know when you see this huge unionization movement in the industrial era from like the u.s these like these are like full-time people and this was their livelihood so they needed to gain some sort of like you know access back from, you know, the companies where you can say, you still see it now with like, you know, the coal miners association and other laborers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And for here, for SB Nation, I think I know for like Schwinn and I are probably a really good 
example of it. It's like we just do the podcast for the week and we write when we want because we have our other source of income from other uh, places. So this isn't priority number one in trying to convince people like us. You, you could honestly, you could probably convince like Twin and I to be like, okay, sure, yeah, we'll do union stuff. But like generally speaking, like it's really difficult to get people who don't have like this huge like full time connection to somewhere to be like, yes, we need to actually start a union to get this um get a piece of what we deserve back. So it it makes it really complicated. You see that not just for like sports writing, you see that with like retail workers as well. There's a huge thing to the idea of like there's a lot of like full time retail workers. And there's also a lot of people who are just like, I'm only here for like, you know, barely twenty hours a week and I'm just doing this for, you know, for shits and giggles. So like, no, I'm not going getting into your labor disputes over, you know, salary, wages, benefits and all that. And I don't know. It's just, it's very complicated with, uh, and, with the team and, blogs. And my understanding is that part of that is the era we're in, you know, with Donald Trump as president and with a labor unfriendly NLRB, uh, labor relations board, you know, it's, it's one of the easier times in recent history for companies to misclassify their workers and not get in trouble mm-hmm. and to, and to, you know, pay people on as, as corporation friendly terms as possible. It's it's a tough time for labor, and it's cool that there is this budding movement, and that digital media is part of it. But there are certainly big gaps in it, and there's there's a long way to go, and it is not the friendliest time. Yeah, um, is someone uh is someone moving? Like, what's going on? Uh, what's going on back there? I don't know. I think I was moving my uh, seat for a second. <laughs> it sounded like people just picking up boxes and whatnot. Oh man, that's a. Uh... <laughs> That's great. Um, do you guys want to get to some, uh, some questions from, uh, from our amazing, uh, listeners? Absolutely. Sure. All right. We're going to start off with probably one of the stronger questions from our, our good friend, uh, Vivek. He, uh, he does stuff for, uh, Nick's film school. So definitely look at, uh, look up for him. I don't know how to pronounce his, uh, his Twitter handle, but it's at VDAD. H-A-N-I-A. I'm going to butcher it. Sorry, Vivek. I'm not, you know, I'm just a white guy who can't pronounce Jewish names or anything like that. <laughs> so his uh his question was, since various Knicks have referred to themselves as dogs throughout the offseason, can we characterize certain players by type of dog? Like, who's the pit bull or the golden retriever? Honestly, Vivek, this was probably our best question. This is exactly what we wanted out of this. So thank you for honoring it. So, uh, guys, let's, let's dive in. Like, what type of dogs would, uh, each of the dicks be? Anyone can go. I don't really have anyone off the top of my head. So, I'll, I'll bounce off you guys. I think, I think Seth should, I mean, as an animal lover, uh, yeah, I think Seth good. obviously like, should start this. Okay, this is, Seth. This is tough because there are so many new nicks. Like, I, I haven't gotten to watch a lot of these guys that much. But what immediately comes to mind is Mitchell Robinson being, um, Basically, any like retriever breed when it's like a year and a half old and its feet are way too big for its body and it's just kind of gangling around and it'll like slobber all over you and actually <laughs> knock you down. Uh, that's what Mitchell Robinson reminds me of. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to stereotype dog breeds here. I feel. <laughs> oh, I'll be um, I'll stereotype them. That's uh, that's fine. But I'll do like a broad sense. Like Trier is like the little dog that's on the leash, where like you're walking down the street and you have like your headphones on, you're not bothering anyone, and then there's this little dog that's like 
like 20 feet away from you and it like locks eyes with you somehow and it just starts barking and yelping and it's just it's so agitated and angry i feel like that's uh that's trier because trier always plays with some sort of like chip on his shoulder for like no reason and he's always angry and he's yelling so that's why i would think uh trier is it's like that little like shit dog that just like is barking for no reason frank's a cat he's not a dog yeah (laughs) yeah frank is definitely a uh it's definitely like i don't know what type of cat though like, he would probably be, like, a Maine Coon, I would say. Nobody cares about cats. I mean, I care about cats. So, Frank is a Maine so, Coon. So, nobody. Right. Perfect. No, that's, that's very true. That's definitely a, <laughs> a nobody element of it. You guys know what a Maine Coon cat is at all? I don't. That's a huge cat, right? Yeah, so it's, like, this huge, like, furry, like, long-limbed cat that's, like, giant. And that's what Frank is. And it is also, like, very mellow, very cool, very temperamental. Like, it's actually, like, a really great pet to have, but it's also, like... I don't want to say like 25 pounds, but it's like, it's like a giant, like, type of uh, cat. That's what Frank is. Just this long-limbed, cool, um, cat that's very temperamental and doesn't like to take shots or drive to the rim or do anything on offense. So, I think that'd be a good description for him. Yeah, cause there's a lot of new Knicks. I don't even know, like, what would Julius Randle, uh, I feel like, I feel like all the Knicks that signed this summer are Bulldogs. Can I, I don't want to take this on a tangent, but have, do we follow Julius Randall on Instagram, and have we seen Julius Randall's actual dog? I have not seen Julius. Oh Randall. no, Julius Randall has this. I can't remember the dog's name, but he has this little, probably like ten pounds, sort of curly dog. It's very cute, and that dog, or Julius Randall films with regularity his dog like vigorously humping its bed. It's really funny. <laughs> I highly recommend Julius Randall on Instagram. He has a very cute child and a very cute dog. Only the dog is ever humping anything, which is probably good. Um, Got a cute kid, but too. The, yeah, in general, like the Knicks have brought in some good, some good dogs this summer on Instagram. And they all describe themselves as dogs. They do. Yeah, so I'm actually going to go on a quick tangent. This actually brings up a point I wanted to get to. Um, question for you, uh, Seth, because we haven't like kind of seen your. Uh, your thoughts on it. Like, what did you think of, like, the Knicks offseason this year? Because I know for here, for, like, for myself and Schwinn, we actually thought it was, like, pretty good. And everyone is kind of blowing up, like, everything with the whole Durant and Kyrie thing, like, out of proportion. Like, we thought it was a good offseason. But I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would have liked to get the, you know, someone who's a superstar. That would be good. Uh, I would have liked to sign maybe fewer people or, you know, I don't know, save a little bit of cap space or try to use some of that cap space to get a pick for the future. Cause I think whether or not you like the off season, it's the, the Knicks are probably not going to be very good this year. You're going to be back in the lottery. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm in a place right now where I just like, I just want to enjoy watching Knicks games. And so, yeah, like signing Julius Randall, I think will help me enjoy watching Knicks games. And, uh, a couple of the other signings are fine. A couple of them I didn't like. I don't like signing Bobby Portis at all when you just signed Randall and, like, mm-hmm. Mitchell Robinson's already there. I did not love their drafts, but, like, it's overall, yeah, fine. It's no better or worse than I expected. Um, and they'll probably, they'll be interesting for, like, probably part of the season next year, and then they'll, fall apart and it won't be fun anymore but um it was fine it was an okay off season 
that's a okay. That's a, I would say that's a fair take on the whole situation. Yeah, so, I, 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 I think like I would feel a hundred percent. I think like right now, if I was grading the Knicks offseason or something, I, I don't know, maybe like a B minus, something like that. Um, but if they hadn't signed Portis or Payton, I think I would be way happier. Um, even if they did absolutely nothing with that space, um, yeah. I'd be a lot happier with that. So I, I kind of, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I just, I think like, I don't know. I, and I guess I wanted to, I wanted to, I guess this can kind of tie into it anyway, because I wanted to, you wrote like probably my favorite, uh, you know, obviously after the Knicks traded Kristaps, like there was like all these kind of soul searching posts. Um, and I think you wrote my, you wrote my favorite one. Um, and I think you like encapsulated, I, even when he was on the Knicks and I was like, you know, talking myself into him being the guy for the foreseeable future, he was like, you still kind of felt like he, he was never like a no brainer max, max guy to me. Um, and I think you kind of, you had like an entire paragraph where you, it was like your, battling with yourself like like this is a stupid trade this is an okay trade this is stupid this is fine like um i think we all went through that and um you know mostly by the end i I kind of like i i i think the trade was probably fair value um if you know what however you want to determine that um but we'll see obviously how things turn out in the future but um i guess like i don't know i do you still, uh, like, how do you feel about that trade now? Because I think you literally wrote it, like, that day. Um, mm-hmm. The trade happened. So I, I guess just, like, now that you're, you know, what, six, six, seven months removed from that moment, uh, like, how do you feel about that trade? I mean, what I think about it is relatively the same, that, like, so many next things in my lifetime, it wasn't. It, it made some sense, just the process was a little skewed, and it happened in such a bizarre, out-of-the-ordinary way. You know, it was so sudden, it didn't feel like they did any shopping, really. They just traded them, and it all happened in what felt like a matter of minutes, you know, to the public. Um, and so there's always like, well, they traded them for nothing. Well, they didn't trade them for nothing. They traded them for cap space, and the cap space didn't turn into anything, but that's a whole separate problem. And then it's like, well, you know, he was hurt and wasn't worth the max contract. And it's like, well, maybe he was. It's just like there's no one way to feel about it. The way I feel at this point is that it's going to really suck watching him in Dallas this year. It's really going to hurt. People keep talking about how much, you know, Durant or Kyrie, I guess, first in Brooklyn and how the Nets probably getting pretty good is going to be painful and might whatever i don't really care about that what is actually going to make me feel sad this year is watching luka Doncic and chris afrazimbis go off together because that even though the move to get rid of him and probably the move to draft him in the first place both of those were sort of typically like it might work out but this is such a weird nixie way to approach things those were very familiar the time in between was pretty unique Chris Sapps being on the Knicks and the Knicks having gotten the draft right, apparently, and brought in an organic, homegrown player who really seemed like he might turn into this, like a superstar, 
that hadn't happened since Ewing in my, you know, it hadn't happened in my lifetime. And so I would love to have that feeling back at some point. I would love if RJ Barrett went against everything I expect of him and became that kind of person too. But just in, in terms of like emotions and, you know, I'm, I'm not very good at actually assessing the value of things and being objective. But from a totally subjective, I just want to have fun. I just want my favorite basketball team to be good. I just want my favorite TV show to actually be good. The Chris Stapps thing was unique, and losing him sucks, and I'm scared. So what if I uh, counter to you, Seth, in the fact that um, Julius Randle, who's the same age, put up equally, if not better, um, numbers than Porzingis, and is also significantly healthier and doesn't have that history of, you know, knee problems and injury history, you know, concerns and whatnot. What if I just, like, throw that at you and the idea of, like, their replacement for someone is actually potentially a better offensive player? Maybe not the same defensive impact, but a better uh, offensive He definitely player. doesn't have the same defensive impact. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> fair enough. But you, but you get what I'm saying. But you get what I'm saying, though. The idea of, like, there's someone who may or may not be, like, actually underrated, which is kind of odd because the idea of, like, a Laker prospect being underrated, like – is unfathomable to me, but like he kind of has been more or less for his career. Yeah. I'm really excited about Randall. He's my, I was happy that they signed him and I'm happy he's around, but you just kind of called my shot there. Like Chris Epps was, and I, I would expect him to improve, but he was merely an okay offensive player. He was good for his age and certainly like just, Watching him, he showed flashes of like, yeah, he's he could be truly special. He just needs to be more efficient and make better decisions and pass better and things like that. But like, his value did not lie exclusively in his offense. Chris Stapps was already distinguishing distinguishing himself as an extremely efficient defensive player and a genuine two way threat and really a bedrock of a whole team, not just the offense. Julius Randle is, yeah, has in, in part because he's just been more healthy and had a, well, except for that first year and had yeah. a more, a more linear developmental, you know, progress, um, has been the more reliable, more efficient, not as sort of thrilling and unique and I, I don't know, prone to he, he understanding doesn't like- his game offensive player and he's a bad defender. That's yeah. the problem. <laughs> he, do, he doesn't, like, capture... I mean, there's definitely something about Kristaps where, like, when he was really rolling, he kind of, like, captured your imagination in certain ways that, um, you know, Randall, Randall's like a rumbler. You know, he's just going to, like... Like, that's just how I view Ram... Like, that's how I describe Julius Randall. He just, like, rumbles into the paint and rumbles around the floor and just, like, bodies people. And it's just... You know, Kristaps was obviously very, very different. Um, and... I don't know. I guess I guess where I come in with Kristaps is like I, I think there's he has very much he's like he has tantalizing skills, um, but then like there's the things that he is bad at. It's not just that he's subpar; it's that he's like totally garbage at them. Like he's just completely shit at rebounding, and he's like absolutely awful at passing the ball, um, like. Not necessarily that he's turnover prone. He's not. He's actually a very low turnover player. Um, but he's like, he doesn't leverage the attention he gets um, to create better pat like opportunity assist 
assists for others. And like, yeah, sure, he's young and that'll get better, but it's like, is it going to get better? Cause you know, I think the, the space he occupies essentially as like, you know, quote unquote, standing as a player, it's like he needs to be basically one of your, you know, two or at, at the minimum third best player in the team. And, you know, if you look around the NBA, it's like usually players with that type of usage and that type of responsibility are just better facilitators or more efficient scorers, better at shot creation. And, you know, those are all areas like, sure, he can, he can get better, but it's like, even if he gets better, is that good enough? I don't know. And I, and I do think that like there are elements of this trade that are unrelated to cap space. Like I think, I think they wanted to trade Kristaps whether or not they want, whether or not they got the cap. I think getting cap space was kind of the result of their desire to move Kristaps. Um, and I, it just seems like they were really never, for whatever reason, and, and a lot of stuff has come out and his behavior off the court in terms of what he's been accused of and also just like getting into bar fights and all the other shit. Like, like I, I mean, I never really, I never really cared for Kristaps off the floor. I liked him as a basketball player. Um, let's just leave it at that. And, um, yeah, I just, I just think there's like elements to this trade that are very not Nixy. Cause I feel like the, the Knicks thing to do, the easiest thing to do would have been just max him, right? Like just give him the max and hope it works out. And I feel like they took a very different approach where, you know, more or less fundamentally, whatever the specifics were, I just feel like they looked at Kristaps. And they decided he isn't, he's not worth this contract for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, on court, off court production, whatever. And, you know, I, I, I guess maybe <laughs> a question, another question for you, Seth, is like, do you feel, I mean, I, I have felt that like since Scott Perry took over that the Knicks have operated in a much more reasonable and professional and straightforward direction um whether i disagree or agree with the individual moves i feel like there's been an underlying logic to a lot of it and um i don't know i guess my thoughts are like do you do you feel like there is a difference in how the organization is being managed under perry or do you kind of think that like we just don't know yet no i, I it feels different i think the knicks we are witnessing the clearing of an extremely low bar because you know we've already talked on this episode about how badly run the Knicks have been under Dolan before and yes it does appear that this time Dolan trusts a couple of people who aren't going to wildly embarrass themselves at every given opportunity like that it is that is genuine improvement there is some consistency in their plan I don't agree with a, a lot of what they do, but like I can get from point A to point B to point C and it adds up and they have not totally sold out the future for the present. They're not just, you know, trying to plug the boat instead of build a new one. It's all an improvement, but like I'm not, that, <laughs> I'm not that thrilled by nearly not being right. humiliating. And frankly, even within that context, they still managed to do these little things around the edges, like the amount of leaking that took place right after they dealt Chris Tapps and like that weird uh, series of like press releases uh, in the middle of free agency on, on July, whatever, whatever that was, 
at the end of June when they like, as soon as Durant signed and then Randall signed in New York, they were releasing statements that were like, uh, well, you know, we're trying and we're sorry. Like it's, it still feels like James Dolan's organization and less like it, less than it used to, but like he's still running his mouth now and then you can still feel a little bit of that influence. And I don't know. I I'll take it. Like this is better than it used to be, but the, the Dolan industrial complex is still evident and, I I am inclined to be wary of anyone in which that guy puts his trust. And even though there seems to be a fairly consistent plan in place, like that is not very much to ask for from people paid to run one of these 30 NBA teams. Yeah, that's uh that's fair. So, I'm going to get us back on track with uh with questions since we got on a a pretty hefty tangent here. Oh, we got that was a number a dog of question. Yeah, that was a dog question. Um, <laughs> so we have a couple questions from our our friend of the show, Paul, for uh, for Gax. His name is Gax on uh, oh, Posting yeah. and Toasting. Yeah, we love uh, we love Gax here. Um, he asked us a number of things. So the first part was, what topping would some players be, assuming a comically large slice of what you know and what five go best together? That's how we wrote it. Um, either I'm reading it poorly or. Gax is not good at writing on Twitter, but I'm assuming it's basically like if each of the players were five toppings, like what's the best combination of those toppings on a large slice of pizza? Um, the other question is what animal is as handsome as Frank? And then the next one is something more um, serious is um, more seriously. We need to start defining concrete goals after we wasted the last two years in terms of player development. What's achievable before we have to max extension Mitch. So there's a lot going on there. I present a bunch of questions. Um, which one do you guys want to start off? Which one do you guys want to start it off or do you want me to kick it off? It's up to you, man. All right. I'll, um, I'll go with the, um, the Frank question. Um, I would say the, uh, the Mancoon cat is equally as handsome as a uh, Frank. It's a, be- it's a beautiful cat. It truly is uh, striking and stunning. Because he's definitely a cat. Like, he's definitely not a tiger because Frank's not as aggressive as a tiger. He could be a lion, like a majestic lion, because lions usually sleep about 20 hours during the day, and they don't really do anything, especially Jesus, like... Jesus, this cat is fucking huge. Which one, the Mancoon? Yeah, my God. Yeah, no, they're, <laughs> they're, they're giant cats. Um, yeah, so that, so Frank is definitely one of those things. Um for Mitch, for I would say for max extension, like Mitch is going to get a max extension. I feel it in my bones. He's um he's a better defensive player than Porzingis. Um, he's not the same offensive player, but I feel like he's going to develop something in the next couple of years. Um, I don't know if it's just even going to be like a corner three point shot or like some sort of like elbow jumper or a crossover drive. Like he's going to do something to like maximize his offensive ceiling in the next couple of years, and his defense is like way ahead of everything else. Um, the topping question is a lot harder because it's like. I don't really eat too many toppings on pizzas. Do you guys like are a multiple topping pizza type of guys? No, uh, see, I actually think that's a sort of a poetic question because I don't want five toppings on a pizza, and I can't think of a great lineup of five of these Knicks right now because they got way too many people. So you don't want to do like to- like Mitch, Taj, Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, and um, and like Frank. You don't want to go with like a super big lineup. I absolutely do want to do that, but it's not going to taste good. 
uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I'm assuming the question was like, if you had to choose five, what would you choose? And then thus like the difficulty in picking a five man lineup for the Knicks also. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I thought about this a lot and I feel like if I'm going to have to pick five toppings to put on a pizza, like a pretty easy, I'm going to do sausage. I'm going to do peppers. I'm going to do onions. So I got three right there. Um, then that like, see, that's when it gets tricky though. It's like, I don't really know what to do after that. Maybe broccoli. Uh, broccoli. Have you ever had broccoli on pizza? It's fucking great. I know. I don't eat broccoli because broccoli is disgusting. That's literally, you sound like a fucking child. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, it's like three I can do. I don't know. Two, picking two after that is hard though. It's like, I, I just don't even know what the hell else. I would want on a on a piece of pizza. Like maybe I would just get more. Like maybe I just get pepperoni on there because why the fuck not? Um, and then I don't you know. could you could probably make a pizza kind of based off what you're saying. You could definitely do like like mushrooms. sausage, peppers, onions, like mushrooms, and then do like you know slices of like garlic or another yeah. cheese or another yeah, garlic would be good. Like you could definitely make a nice pizza going like that way, where you're basically taking the sausage and pepper sandwich concept and just kind of expanding on it. A yeah. little bit, but which players are the Knicks is that combination? I honestly have no clue because yeah. we haven't like I haven't seen because there's so many new people. Like I don't even know who's gonna. Oh, Ra- Randall would be Randall would be the sausage, right? Because he's like gonna be the fulcrum of the offense most likely. I would assume this year. I would uh, say so. And then peppers would be probably Barry. Be, yeah, that, that, it would it would be I think it'd be Mitch because it's like a, one of the fundamental ingredients in that combination, right? Sausage and peppers. Um, And then onions would be like, I think that would be RJ because it's, it's not necessarily like the greatest thing that you could have in there, but it's solid enough. And you like, you know, whatever. Uh, The garlic would be, that would be Frank because it's like not necessarily the eye catching topping, but it does add value to the pizza. Uh, and then what was the other one? What was the other? Mushrooms. Mushrooms. That would be like, I don't know, fucking. It could literally be like anyone. Cause it's going to be like some sort of like one dimensional aspect that only adds like this earthy. So it's, to the okay. Pizza. So it's, so it's Knox. Dennis Smith. Yeah. <laughs> or Dennis Smith. Dennis Smith. Yeah. Like it's like, cause mushrooms, I, I, I do like a good mushroom, but like they are one dimensional in a way. Like they don't add, depending on what you're preparing it with, but on a pizza, it's just going to be. One dimensional. Yeah, so that, that would be a good lineup. I think that's a pretty good lineup. Frank, Dennis, RJ, Mitch, Randall. Not a lot of floor spacing, but I would I want to see that lineup at some point. I do I do think like Dennis, Frank, and RJ would be a fun trio to to mess around with this year. But you know, I doubt that that that's we're gonna see too much of that because I don't even know what the fuck Fizdale is gonna do. Well, that yeah, that's a whole other. I feel like it's a whole other. Um, actually, you know what? We're gonna have a, a Fizdale question. That, um, cause I think it kind of fits in perfectly. Well, I actually take a serious next question. This is from, uh, City Gomez on, uh, posting and toasting. Like, how, on how confident you are in Fisdale leading the Knicks this season? <laughs> I'll let Seth start that. Like, he has more, like, comments in there. Like, he's like, he still feels like, kind of like that used car salesman type of guy who's just, like, really, like, trying to sell you on stuff. And, you know, and he's just worried about like the rotations and the strategy. But you know, just in general, like how confident are we in uh 
and Fizdale leading the Knicks this year. Yeah, Seth, why don't you take it over? I, I, I think he has been dealt a very difficult hand to play. I keep saying they have too many guys because they have too many guys. They, I don't know how even a great coach tries to form a rotation out of this group of players in a way that keeps everyone happy, that, you know, acknowledges the fact that the Knicks spent a bunch of money, that acknowledges the fact that the Knicks probably aren't going to be very good and should be developing their young players. Um, I, I don't know how you do that. And I, you know, he, he hasn't been, he hasn't been given really the tools to like put together a good defense. I'm, the only thing I'm looking for from him, from him this season and that I don't think we got last season is for the Knicks to have some sort of identity, to have some sort of fingerprint where you can say, like, if the Knicks were good, if the Knicks are good a year or two from now, this is what it would look like. Teams like the Sixers and the Nets in their division that sucked a couple of years ago but are good now did that while they were bad. You know, the Sixers had one of the best defenses in the league even when they were terrible. The Nets were shooting tons of threes, even when they were terrible. The Knicks last season were terrible, and they were just broadly terrible. They didn't, they weren't terrible in any interesting or intentional way. They were just bad. And so, I'm not sure that it's been made easier for Fisdale to improve upon that and to give the Knicks some sort of some mo, some just you know that you could watch the players playing with bags over their heads and being like, oh yeah, this is the Knicks. This is, you know, they're running unique sets and approaching the game in a unique way. I don't, I don't know that I can fairly expect that of him. And I sort of wonder if he's, you know, when the Knicks inevitably flame out this season, if his, if his job is on the line. Yeah. I don't know if his job is going to be on the line just yet. I feel like they have a lot of faith in what they do, but I got, I do think there is identity to the Knicks and what they're striving for. And you kind of saw bits and pieces of it last year. The problem is this, like, they didn't have really good players to do it, but they want to get downhill and they want to get to the line. And you saw a huge increase in the free throw rate from before Fisdale and then to this past season. And then adding Randall, Barrett, and so forth. Like, the idea, like, they're going to, they want to bulldoze, they want to get to the line, and they want to be, I don't know if they're going to be efficient from the line because of the free throw shooting from like Barrett and so forth, but you kind of see like the players that they pick, like Smith goes downhill, Knox gets to the line, Barrett does it. Like that's what their, I think their identity is to try to maximize the efficiency from the foul line for players who aren't like chasing foul calls on the three point line, like the Rockets, but just guys who just generally draw fouls. I, I actually think that's their identity moving forward. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I have, I'm like, if, if I was grading him my confidence in Fizdale on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd probably give it like a, a 3. I'm not that confident. I, I I do think that there are there are aspects to coaching which are relevant um, that you don't see. Like, I do think he is good at kind of, with these young guys, keeping them with him. And, like, you know, even even when he was not really playing Frank – you know, I mean, man, maybe that's just Frank being Frank, but like, you know, Frank always kind of like stayed, like he, he's always kind of stayed on board and said, you know, the right things. And, um, you know, like I, I think all the young guys last year kind of did, like they, they did kind of form some bond with Fisdale and he did connect with them. So, you know, that, that is something that's good. Um, obviously he's had his issues with, you know, some vets, but like, I don't really know. The Marcus old thing I, I would say is somewhat 
concerning, but like, you know, I, I don't know specifically what the case was there. And then the Ennis Cantor thing was just Ennis. Like, I, I don't really blame Fizz for that because Fizz played him a bunch and he just decided that he was going to be pissy as soon as he, you know, went to the bench or whatever it was. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that there is some good stuff, but like, you know, strategically, like, yeah, he want they want to get downhill. Um, yeah, they want to get to the line. I, I for sure agree with that. And I do think that, um, having actual somewhat competent shooters this year was a big goal of theirs in the summer. And you can see that with a lot of the guys they did sign, um, like Ellington, Bullock, um, even Marcus, Marquis, Marcus Morris is a pretty decent shooter. Portis actually shot really well from three last year. Um, so like they, they definitely wanted to add that to kind of increase their ability to drive. Um, but you know, like I need to see more than I want guys to be aggressive and keep what they kill and like run up and down the floor really fast because you need to have actual strategies and concepts to kind of like get to what you want and then you know we just didn't see that last year because it, it just seemed like so many times you know, the shit we ran was so basic and so boring it was like okay you know have some wing run off of a couple of screens pass it over to him if he gets a shot great if not well just iso or something like it, it was just lacking in creativity and hopefully um i am optimistic that that Adding Mike Miller from Westchester is kind of a means to that end, uh, to, to achieving that because he did, he has done a really good job in Westchester of like, not just developing players, but you know, you know, part of that development has been because they have a clear structure to their play. Um, so, you know, if, if we're about development, we need a clear structure to our play so that guys can kind of, uh, you know, focus on what they need to do and they have a clear idea of what they should be doing. Cause a lot of times last year, it didn't, didn't it just seem like guys didn't know what the hell they were doing? Yeah, I would agree with that. It didn't seem like anyone knew what they were doing. Cause I don't know if there was yeah. anything to do either. So yeah, it was like the only guy was Mitch and I feel like Mitch's job was, I think they were really pretty much like, look, all you're going to do is be athletic. Set, yeah. Set screens and dive for the rim and then, you know, crash the glass and block shots. Like don't do anything else. Don't dribble. Don't fucking shoot. <laughs> Just do those things. Yeah. So, um, I have another question here from Duncan Idaho on posting and toasting. What are the most underrated pizza toppings? Oh, I feel like this is a tough one because it sounds like Seth and I only do like three toppings ever on a pizza. So what would you say is an underrated pizza topping? Uh, broccoli. Broccoli is underrated. Uh, God. You are, are you, are, how old are you? Six? I'm do you, a, not, do you not, do you not want your veggies with your listen, dinner? I'm four years old. I don't like, uh, broccoli. Um, you don't like your greens? I don't like my greens. They're really yucky. They, uh, they taste weird and they smell funny. Um, anybody that says pineapple is an arc, uh, not an underrated pizza topping. Yeah. Seth, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Uh, I don't, I think I've only had it once in my life. And it was on like a shitty Domino's pie in Vegas at three o'clock in the morning. And at that moment. How sober were you? I, I was not sober at all. And I gotta say, at that moment, it was perfectly acceptable. So, I don't know. I, I, I could feel, get into it. I, I, the idea of like, it's perfectly acceptable 
yeah, it's perfectly acceptable, like, 3 a.m. wasted in Vegas on, like, the Strip, then, yeah, sure, anything is going to be, like, tasty. Like, if you're going into, like, the city and you're going to, like, your favorite pizza spot, like, are you going to be like, yeah, I want pineapples on my slice? But no, there are people that do that. People do that. It's so gross to me. Like, how, I, what, what is your favorite pizza topping? Mine's pepperoni. Keep it classic. Uh, I, I really like to get mushrooms on pizza, sometimes mushrooms and olives. Um, if, olives. if a place. Olives are an underrated topping. No, I would say olives would be the underrated topping on the pizza because it adds like a nice, um, like saltiness to it. Yeah. Yeah. And a nice and texture. I, I have no concept of the, you know, how things are rated out there, but I think another <laughs> delightful thing that's sort of a specialty pie is having clams on a pizza, never which you can find, oh, find never some had. places in New York, um, and at the places that do that, like, uh, Danino's, which is in, the, in Staten Island, and uh, there's one downtown, and Lee's Tavern on Staten Island, and... Um, the Are you from Staten the, Island? Seth, no, you, but... Are really telling our <laughs> listeners to go to Staten Island for pizza? Absolutely go to Staten Island for pizza. Go to Lee's Tavern. You can get there. You take the ferry. You hop in the SIR. It's a quick trip. You can walk from the SIR to Lee's Tavern. It is a wonderful place. I am not from Staten Island. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> but How much does Lee's pay you for that ad? Uh, nothing, but if they want to, I am willing to be paid in clam pies. All right, that's good. So Lee's uh, Tavern, if you're listening, please sponsor the show with uh, clam pizza pies. We'll no, sponsor do... me personally. Okay, just sponsor that. We don't we don't <laughs> want your clam pizza pies. That's fine. So, but so we're gonna go with what broccoli and olives as the underrated and clams. Sure. Clams. Okay. Yeah, I've never I've never seen that. That's incredible. That would be an unholy combination, by the way. You don't want oh. better. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to do broccoli, uh, olives, and clams on your pizza? Can't say I do. All right. I, I think we should try it. Someone mentioned in the comments that uh, ricotta is a, uh underrated pizza topping. And I don't know if it's actually underrated because, like, that's the foundation of any good white pie. So can it actually be underrated if it's a foundational piece? I'm not, mm, a, big, yes. I'm not a big ricotta guy. I don't, I don't ever want a white pie. Yeah, I don't like white pies. That's uh that's pretty fair. So we have another question from uh from AJ, our our you know our frenemy. Is he is AJ going to be a frenemy, a friend of the show, enemy of the show? AJ's a friend. friend. AJ's a friend. Okay, AJ's a friend of the show. So um he asked us uh, if each Nick, each current Nick had a spirit animal, what would it be? Um AJ, there's like 25 Nicks on the roster. We're not going through 25 of them for spirit animals. Um. Do you guys have any thoughts on it, like who would be like someone's spirit animal for uh for these guys? I gotta say, I'm I'm a little disappointed because you know, you asked me like, hey, what are some other things that you care about and have opinions about and we want to talk about? And I said animals and I think you had already said pizza. But like I wanna talk about animals on their own terms. Why do we gotta be comparing the Knicks to animals? That's uh Frivolous exercise. <laughs> that's um okay. That's fair. So uh, AJ, it looks like Seth just shut down your question. So um Seth, let's talk about just animals on a um on an isolated thing. So between I would say a grizzly bear and a tiger, who's winning in a fight? I don't care. Let's let's talk about animals. A grizzly bear would never fight a tiger. All right. So this so we're going that route. So okay, lead us on a lead us on an animal discussion. Let's go for it. All right. Let's talk about um. Frogs. 
frogs. All right, let's do it. What about frogs? Uh, I, th- I think that bullfrogs are a fantastic animal, uh, at my wife's parents' house. There's a pond across the street and there are bullfrogs and during mating season they make a bunch of noise and you can hear them all night and I think that's great. And I think that has nothing to do with, you know, Marcus Morris. Okay, that's fair. So what are your thoughts on, have you ever been up to the, uh, Boston area at all? You know, my neck of the woods? <sighs> God. Not in a long, long time. Not awesome. since I was a kid, but okay. Because I was going to ask you, what are your thoughts on wild turkeys just wandering the roads? On Is a, that a thing? Yeah, that's a thing here. Yeah, just, we had that. We had that in Jersey too, and they're they're pretty scary. Those they're are very scary. Big animals. motherfuckers. And uh, growing up, my dogs would occasionally do a little battle with wild turkeys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did they yeah, ever? I, I, you know, I was sort of raised to think of wild turkeys as menaces because that's what they were in the suburbs. They were just like these six foot tall beasts that would like lurk around and like, I don't really know what damage they did, but they were just intimidating and that's not really their fault. I don't want to hold that against them, but I, I probably come into any engagement with a wild turkey with some bias from my upbringing, but for any wild turkeys listening, like. I don't really know where that comes from, and I'm I'm trying to get better. That's that's really good that you're trying to be open about um your turkey issues. Is there any other animal that you're encountering in the wild, and you're like, shit, I don't want to deal with them at all? Um, that you know, I've I, again growing up in the suburbs in a really old house with a lot of like holes in the walls. I have had some encounters with bats in my life. Mm. And that's another animal where I've tried to, you know, better myself in terms of how I perceive and relate to them. I was pretty frightened of them as a kid because it's it's not fun being indoors with a bat. Um, they they really make a ruckus and you have to get rabies shots. I've never had to get a rabies shot, but as I've as I've aged and as I've become more, you know, worldly, uh, I understand the important role that bats play. And, you know, eating mosquitoes and pollinating in some parts of the world um, and and just being like pretty, you know, sweet and interesting creatures. And I still think I would not want to be trapped in a suburban New Jersey living room with one of them. I prefer that they stay outside. Um, but, yeah, bat, bats, I, I've come a long way and I, I really think I appreciate them now in a way I didn't before. Have you ever bats. seen the... Um, they are terrifying, but have you ever seen the, I think it's like the Indonesian like fruit bat? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're like, do- they're like dogs with wings and they're giant. Bats in general kind of just look like nice little doggies with weird leathery wings. Well, not the, not the bats in New Jersey. They have like the scary little like, you know, Voldemort type faces and stuff. Yeah, but if you went up close, they would kind of, they would look like sort of a little ugly dog, but they still look like dogs. Ah, okay, that's fair. Um, what are your thoughts on snakes? Um, you know, there's all kinds. Uh, I, I've i never owned or really interacted with a pet snake. Uh, I saw a snake this past weekend because I was home in New Jersey um, and saw a garter snake while I was hiking on a trail. Um, I don't know. Snakes are fine. I do not want to be bitten by one. I don't think I'm particularly afraid of them. Um but I don't know that I have really had opportunity to suss that out. Have you guys yeah. ever like? Have you guys ever held a snake? I don't think I ever have. Uh, no, I I'm... have. 
yeah, I have, I have, but it wasn't like a real, it wasn't like a scary snake. It was like, I think it was like a garter snake or something like that. I'm a, I'm completely terrified of a, of snakes. Like, terribly afraid of it. Even when I go to the, um, the zoo, like if I have to go through the reptile wing, like I am petrified that they're gonna come and attack me. I, I can't do it. They scare me. Even the gardener snakes scare me. I remember I saw one at, uh, my grandmother's house and I literally saw it and it looked at me and I ran. I jumped over a fence and I just ran away and I just didn't want to be with it. They, uh, they scare me. Do I you think, think that they, was there an impetus for that? Is there something that sort of brought upon this fear of snakes or is it, I, yeah. I can completely understand why just viscerally you would be terrified of like something that moves in such an eerie way, but did you have a bad experience? Yeah, the gardener snake that popped up from uh, my grandma's like pool filter that came out of nowhere. He was like, "Hey, buddy, how you doing?" And I was like, "Nope." And I just ran. It scared me. I was like, "That, that was your horrible experience." Yeah, I was like twenty five years old. But oh I still God. think there must be there <laughs> must be something innate to that because, like, for instance, when I was little, a squirrel shimmied its way down the chimney and popped out of our fireplace and was running around our living room, and it freaked me out. But I'm not like scared of squirrels now. Yeah, but that's adorable though. Squirrels are adorable. My mom, so much, my so mom is also, my mom is similarly scared of snakes. Like, she, like, can't even, like, look at them. Yeah, see, because your mom's a smart person and a wise person. That is true. Um, that's the only thing you guys have in common, though, because you are neither smart nor wise. Well, you're just saying, you're saying your mom is neither smart nor wise? No, you are neither smart nor wise. No, I clearly am because we're both afraid of snakes. So that clearly shows a level of intellect that you guys don't understand. Yeah, well, it's possible. It's definitely a possibility. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I snakes, they don't really like. Maybe if I was out in the wild or something, I would be scared of snakes. But it's like, I just I can't be scared of something that's behind, like you know, at a zoo. Like, there's no danger there, um, unless I pull like an anchor man and jump into the pit or something. Um, I yeah. mean, unless you're Harambe, you know, then you you know. You should be afraid of what can happen to you. <laughs> true. Very true. Uh, Seth, do you go regularly hiking? Like, do you encounter any sort of, like, animals? Like, when you're hiking? Um, I, not regularly, but now and then I try to, you know, I live in Brooklyn, so there's only so much, and I don't have a car, so there's only so much hiking one can do, but uh, I've seen bears. I saw a bear in the Catskills last year, a little baby bear. That was cool. And like lizards and snakes and stuff. Uh, I sometimes go hiking in Colorado. I can't say I've seen anything particularly interesting out there. Um, but I, I really like, I relish the opportunity to see animals in the wild. I think maybe the best hike I've ever been on was in the woods in Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula. And I saw howler monkeys and spider monkeys and got extremely emotional because it was awesome. That sounds, uh, it really does sound, did you like feed them or anything like that? Were they afraid of you? Like how was like that interaction between you and the woods in the Yucatan and like a bunch of monkeys? Well, no, and that, that's what was really beautiful is no, I didn't feed them. They were doing their own thing. They were up in the trees swinging around. They weren't here for me. You know, they had not been tamed or, or, or conditioned to hang around people at all. They were just doing their thing. And that's, that's my favorite way to see an animal is, you know, where it feels totally natural and, like, no one is intruding on anyone else's space. That's, uh, that's what's up. And you know what? I think that may be a good spot to end this episode since we've been recording now for 
almost an hour and a half. So oh, there, um, there is one question in the comments that I did want to uh, ask oh, Seth. Just because right, it, it. It, it's a good uh, it's a good way to end it, considering how we started. Uh, this is from commenter on posting and toasting J slash Noel. Uh, which Knicks trade would you take back in the last 20 years? In the last well, 20 years. Okay. Um, I think, so I, I just wrote, I spent a bunch of time researching this actually because I wrote an episode of our series Collapse about the Knicks. Oh man, that was so and good. So, yeah, that was really good. <laughs> stuff is fresh in my head. I think that the trade for Eddie Curry, which sent out Two future lottery picks, one of which became, well, kind of, it was LaMarcus Aldridge traded for Tyrus Thomas, but it could have been LaMarcus Aldridge, uh, the other of which became Joe Noah. But the point is they were both top five picks um, for Eddie Curry, who any reasonable person knew was not going to become some sort of great Nick. He had uh, a heart problem. <laughs> he, had, he had a heart problem. Yes. He, he did not really love to play defense. Or, or basketball, basketball really. Yeah, he, just, <laughs> he seemed like a, a a fascinating dude with a lot of natural talent and obviously um, some height going for him, but just not a guy who was ever going to be an NBA star because I don't think he particularly wanted to be. Um, the Knicks, yeah, traded to two opportunities to grab actual superstars for him and you know a bunch of other stuff was involved too. That was really bad. That set them back really far, and it's sort of an obvious answer, but, like, that was an absolutely dismal trade. Yeah, that was – that's a rough one because Eddie Curry was basically, like, pre-Andrew Bynum in a way. Like, they kind of like that same sort of, like, mold, the idea of, like, they're like, these guys are talented, but they just don't care about basketball. And the state of wasting all that um, – those assets on just that guy – I'm gonna go on a um on a different part because like the obvious answers are like Eddie Curry, Andre Bognani, and so much. I would do the mellow trade over again. I would love to do it and just not have Carmelo Anthony on the Knicks at all. Just the whole the whole saga with it, the idea of just like wasting all this uh wasting all the trade, Carmelo like being like, Oh, I would play for the Nets if I want, you know, just to force the hand. I would just I wouldn't do that trade over again. I just would love to just breeze over the whole Carmelo era because it was just so Underwhelming, despite the fun, really fun, like fifty-five-one season. It was just everything else was just like mediocre to awful. I just really wish I could just take it all back. Yeah, I, I think it's it's the Curry trade for sure. But I think yeah, like under, that's the that's like the real answer. But yeah. yeah, but like the the I think another low-key, just horrible trade was the um, which wasn't nearly as detrimental, but kind of more depressing for various reasons was the uh the Francis trade. It was like was it Ariza and a pick I think for Francis just made awesome. no sense at all. Um and like Ariza has ended up being a very good pro, <laughs> like still mm-hmm. playing in the NBA, um has been won a championship with the Lakers a few years after that. Uh just generally has been like a a nice piece on a bunch of winning teams and the Knicks traded him for Steve Francis when they already had Stefan Marbury. And like Ariza was a fucking rookie. He was nineteen and he was already like like you could tell I remember watching him then you were I mean the entire question with him was like, okay, well can he turn into a good shooter? Because like he can definitely play defense and he has enough about him to stay on the floor. So 
you know, can he become a good shooter? And instead of, you know, waiting like a fucking year or two, we just had to trade him for Steve Francis, who did make that one game winner and then jumped on the scorer's table. That was the first first game I ever recapped for posting and toasting. Really? Was that <laughs> uh, I will throw out, I want to throw out one more trade because we've been piling on, on Isaiah and oh part goodness. of part of writing, doing that research was remembering how much he was not alone in this. And I think we're coming up on like, this is pushing the 20 year limit, but the, the dismantling of the last really good Knicks team, you know, putting aside that one season recently, uh, the last like really good long running Knicks team, the dismantling of that team from the Ewing trade on down was really bad. And obviously the Ewing trade was terrible, but the Marcus Camby trade, the deal Ugh. that sent Marcus Camby and the seventh pick in the draft, which became the Nay, but could have been Mari Stoudemire, could have been Tron Butler. Marcus Camby. Hey, Nene is pretty good too. Yes, Nene's yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And Marcus Camby, who was quite a good player, traded both of those for Antonio McDice, who also quite a good player but had just missed most of the season because of the knee injury. They traded two extremely valuable young assets for a guy who, like, and, you know, they could not have reasonably expected that he was going to immediately blow out his knee again. But, like, he was at his, you know, he was, like, a an even more devalued version of what Kristaps was last year, where it was like, is this guy ever going to be a healthy player? Is he super injury prone? And he was a little older. They traded two Super valuable young players, you know, one to be named, one already having gone to the finals with them for Antonio McDice. That was in such a bad trade. Yeah, that was. And that was Scott. That wasn't Isaiah. Yeah, Layden had, Layden made a lot of really stupid trades that I think get lost because of how shitty Isaiah was and how much more high profile Isaiah's mistakes were. But like, he traded a first round pick for Othella Harrington for no reason at all. Uh, Like, I, I don't know what the purpose of that was. And like the thing that was crazy about that is that one of the, that was one of the picks they got in the Ewing trade. Yep. So it was like, you turned that into Othella Harrington, you know, or, you know, congrats. And then like, there was just that phase where, you know, he decided, like they signed Clarence Weatherspoon. Like, why do we need Clarence Weatherspoon? Um, I don't know. It was just, there were so many just awful, awful moves. Like the one, and then, you know, then he traded Spreewell for Van Horn, which was like, I mean, whatever. It didn't mean anything. It was just a worthless trade that didn't actually matter. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Layden just, he sucks so much. And, you know, with Isaiah, I always felt like he didn't have any idea of how to put together a team, but like he actually was kind of okay in terms of identifying talent. Um, his drafting was pretty decent. He just never had the patience to actually like hold on to those guys and develop them more or less, but you know, he drafted okay. Uh, you know, even in the, uh, the horrible Eddie Curry trade, they, the second pick, it was a pick swap. So they like, so they got Wilson Chandler with that, with that pick, which was like the 21st or 22nd pick or something like that in that draft. Um, like pretty good. That's a pretty good find, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a, that's a good pick. Uh, it's just like he didn't, like, I don't know. I, with Isaiah, it's like almost like he didn't even know what the hell he was good at and just decided to like, it was just crazy, like the just because they signed Jerome James to that five year contract, and then that same summer they they traded for Eddie Curry. Yep. <laughs> oh man, what a what a depressing way to uh to end this episode. It really is. 
So, um, Seth, do you have anything to plug at all? No, I'm just I'm happy the Knicks have all their picks now, for better or worse. And others. A nice little reminder that, you know, it's a low bar to clear, but the Knicks are not constantly trading the best, cheapest way to get better anymore. And they used to do this all the time. I have nothing to plug, though, sorry. Much less Knicksing nowadays. Yes. Um, Yeah, if you haven't watched it, watch Seth's video. Collapse. That was really good. The next one. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll plug that. We'll plug Seth's video. Collapse. Uh, did we post that on uh, Posting and Toasting? I'm pretty sure uh, we did. I think, I think you guys did. I was yeah, I think Stingy did. Yeah, so we'll definitely you know search for that. Maybe we'll just throw it in the links when we uh, publish the uh, the podcast article. Um, I don't even think I have anything to plug other than the Posting and Toasting show hosted by Drew Steele and Ashwin Ramnath. Um, yeah, that's really uh. That's it. So, Seth, thanks for uh, wasting an hour and a half of your morning, you know, shooting the shit with us. We uh, we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime.